The heart of man is getting no more evil than it always has been. We have always been evil since our fall in the garden. And so we are not becoming more evil as people, but society is becoming more evil. God is allowing increased manifestations of evil as the return of Christ draws closer. Might I suggest to you that the most personal, intimate part of you are your thoughts? I mean, think about that. The thoughts that occur in your mind, is there anything more personal, more private, more intimate than that? Which is why it's so uncanny the thought of someone else knowing our thoughts. Isn't that a very unsettling thing to to think of the prospect of someone knowing our thoughts? Remember how Jesus would know people's thoughts? Simon the Pharisee, you were thinking this, Simon. Or to the Pharisees, Jesus knew their thoughts. And that was so disturbing to them. Rightly so. For another person to tell you what you're thinking, and I know spouses, sometimes we know what we're thinking, but not really. We kind of know the big idea. To know someone's thoughts in detail. But let's take it one step further. Daniel's not telling Nebuchadnezzar his thoughts. Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed. Now, think back to maybe some of your wild, crazy dreams. Is that not on a whole different level of Intimate, personal. To have someone tell you what you dreamed. Imagine going to work tomorrow. You sit down with a coworker, and you just the night before you dream this weird dream. You're riding a motorcycle that turned into a rocket ship, and you know, well, you know how dreams go. And you'd woken up and kind of laughed at that dream. Wonder, wonder where that came from. You went about your day and then you sit down to work with a coworker, and the coworker says, Last night you dreamed you were riding a motorcycle and it turned into a rocket ship. And you did this, and this happened, and that happened. And here's what that means. You would have ran out of the room, wouldn't you? Nebuchadnezzar's jaw is on the floor. At the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar is going to worship Daniel. The word that is used there is clearly worship. The same word is used 11 times in chapter 3 to describe what Nebuchadnezzar requires to the statue. Nebuchadnezzar drops and worships Daniel, and that's one reason the critical scholars say this story couldn't be true. The king of Babylon would not bow down and worship a teenage exile. Oh, yeah? When he just told you what you dreamed and what that means? So Nebuchadnezzar is captivated, doesn't describe Nebuchadnezzar right now. He is entranced at this young teenage boy who speaks his language as a second language, whose culture is a second culture to his own. Now he's telling him what he dreamed and what his dream means. You saw, O king, 
And behold, a great image, this image mighty and exceeding brightness stood before you. That word brightness literally is fearfulness. So this incredibly bright, frightening statue. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation. Who is we? Yeah. Now maybe his three friends are there, but his three friends weren't given the dream. Now, we will tell you the meaning of this dream. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they, so they will be mixed with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the, the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. So there is the dream, and Daniel goes on to interpret it. We are familiar with the basics of the dream. There's this big statue. It's a fearsome, frightening, bright, illuminated kind of image. We don't know how big it is, but we do know this, that the very next passage, how does chapter 3 begin? Remember how we've talked on occasions about how our verse divisions and our chapter divisions are not part of Scripture. Our verse divisions and chapter divisions are added for our benefit to help us navigate our Bibles, but they're not part of Scripture. God didn't stop and say, okay, now that was chapter 2, now let me, let me give you chapter 3. It's one story. So ignore the three. The next chapter begins with, and Nebuchadnezzar made a statue. Could there be a connection? Now, that statue is going to be 60 cubits high or 90 feet high, probably modeled after what he sees. So we're going to see lots of connections between the statue that Nebuchadnezzar makes and the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. So he sees this great statue, probably something like 90 feet tall, fearsome, bright, and the statue is made of these four materials. There's a head of, of gold. There's a chest and arms of silver. There's a middle and thighs of bronze. And there's legs of iron. And then uh, finally feet of iron and clay mixed together. 
And Daniel then goes on to explain what these things mean. Uh, Of course, there's the stone cut by no human hand that crushes the feet. And when it crushes the feet, the entire statue crumbles as well. The whole statue goes to dust and is blown away. And then the stone becomes a mountain that covers the whole earth. So then Daniel goes on to say, now let me tell you what this means. First of all, this statue represents these four kingdoms. The first kingdom is the head. The head is the gold. And that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, notice Daniel's going to spend a lot of time talking about the first kingdom and the fourth kingdom. Spends almost no time talking about the second and the third kingdom, the kingdom of silver, the kingdom of bronze. But he talks a great deal about the kingdom of iron, and he talks a lot about the kingdom of gold, which is Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. You are the head, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the great king. God has made you the great king over all the earth, over the beasts of the field. He's made you this great king. Is Daniel flattering him? Daniel is not flattering him. We'll see in a moment what Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar and why. So you are the head of gold. And then after you is going to come another kingdom. That's the chest and arms of silver. Now that kingdom we're going to read about in chapters 3, 4, and 5. That's going to be the Medo-Persian kingdom. That's going to come to rise after the kingdom of Babylon. So this Medo-Persian kingdom, many scholars see that the two arms of silver represents the, the Medes and the Persians coming together in one kingdom like that. Then we see the Roman kingdom come after that, the legs of iron. I'm sorry, not the Romans. I skipped over the bronze. The bronze comes next. The bronze is the kingdom of Greece, the, the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, which consumed almost the entire known world at that time. Then after that comes the Roman Empire, which is the legs of iron. Many people see a correlation there between two legs, and then there's the Eastern Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire that might might be one aspect of it or not. So there's this Roman Empire that comes, it's the legs of iron, and then after that comes the feet, which are a mixture of potter's clay and iron put together, which don't really hold together. So he says the meaning of this is that these are the kingdoms to come. God has shown you, he's shown you, Nebuchadnezzar, what is to come. And what is to come are these kingdoms. First is your kingdom. Your kingdom is the head of gold. You're the most powerful king. Next comes the Medo-Persians. They will defeat your kingdom and they will rise to even greater power. After that will come the Greek kingdom. They will defeat the Persians and they will rise to even greater power. And then will come the Roman Empire, which will be the strongest of all. So two things to notice about the materials that are spoken of here. One is the the increasing strength, and the other is the decreasing value. So as we go from head to toe, we go from softer to stronger until we get to the feet. And then as we go from head to toe, we go from more valuable to less valuable. So those will come into play as we begin to understand the meanings here. So these are the four kingdoms that are to come. Now, the Babylonian kingdom is the most valuable, but it's also the weakest. The Babylonian kingdom was the shortest of all those four kingdoms that we just mentioned. It only lasted 66 years. So the Babylonian kingdom conquered the smallest amount of area. It was the weakest, the softest but it's also the most valuable. We'll talk about that in just a minute. From that, we go to the kingdom of the Medo-Persians, which was bigger. They conquered the Babylonians and more, and they lasted longer. They lasted for about 205 years, but then they were also destroyed by the Greeks, who were a stronger kingdom who conquered even more area. However, they were less valuable. They were the bronze. And then it's all concluded by the Roman Empire, which was the strongest of all, the might the strength of the Roman Empire was legendary and the 
or the area of the globe that they conquered was unparalleled in history. So there's the Roman Empire that lasted the longest of all of them, 500 years. That's the strongest material, but it's also the least valuable. And then comes the toes and the feet, which are the clay and the iron mixed together. So these four kingdoms that are to come, each one lasts longer than the previous. Each is stronger than the previous, but each is also less valuable than the previous. So one thing that's showing us is that as the stone made from no human hands is approaching, the stone made from human hands is going to clearly be Christ. Christ in the scriptures is often described as stone. Psalm 118 talks about the stone that the builders rejected that's become the cornerstone. Jesus himself applies that to himself and says, that's me. I'm the stone the builders rejected and I have become the cornerstone and I will crush those who stumble over me. Peter picks up on the same imagery and says Christ is the stone. Paul picks up on different imagery and says Christ is the rock that water came from. So this a very common analogy to refer to Christ as the stone that crushes. So Christ and his kingdom are the stone that will crush and destroy. But each kingdom, as it succeeds the previous kingdom, becomes stronger and it becomes less valuable. So that teaches us of the increase of evil in the world that we are to, to expect as the return of Christ comes nearer. The heart of man is getting no more evil than it always has been. We have always been evil since our fall in the garden. And so we are not becoming more evil as people, but society is becoming more evil. God is allowing increased manifestations of evil as the return of Christ or as the return of the stone draws closer and nearer. So that's teaching us as each material gets less valuable, it's becoming in God's eyes less worthy, less moral, less ethical. But it's also coming stronger. Then the final kingdom is going to be a mixture of these two types of materials. We see that in the toes, there are obviously ten toes on human feet. And that's going to correspond perfectly when we get to chapter 7. We're going to see Daniel talk, also talk about ten horns. And he's going to say those ten horns represent ten kingdoms. The book of the Revelation is going to pick up on that. Remember we said how there are few pairs of books in Scripture that are more paralleled than Daniel and Revelation. So the Revelation in chapter 7, chapter 13, they're going to pick up on that imagery of ten horns that are ten kingdoms. Now whether that's literally ten kingdoms or figuratively ten kingdoms, get this, it doesn't matter. Either way, it means the same thing. There's this federation of strength and weakness that comes together, but it's not really together. And that's what the world is going to look like until the return of the Son of Man. Toward the return, chapter 7, Daniel's going to write about that, verse 24, the return of the Son of Man, which will crush all those kingdoms to such a point that they're not in broken rubble. They are dust that's blown away not even to be seen anymore. And then the stone that crushed them will become the mountain that consumes the entire earth. And so this was what Nebuchadnezzar was shown. Nebuchadnezzar was stunned to his core that Daniel knew this. But once Daniel describes what it means, Nebuchadnezzar must be further stunned because he's just been shown what Jesus refers to as the times of the Gentiles. Luke chapter 21. Here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24. 
They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This was a vision of the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is a period of time that began in 586 B.C. So right now, as Daniel is interpreting this dream, is that past or future? That's future. 586 hasn't happened yet in Daniel's world. So in a few years, that's going to be the third siege of Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar goes back for the third time, flattens the place. That's the beginning of the time of the Gentiles. And that's going to extend all the way until the return of Christ. The times of the Gentiles means the time that Gentiles rule over Jerusalem. In which Jerusalem has been crushed and there are now Gentiles ruling over Jerusalem in total or in part. And that will happen all the way until the return of Christ. And so Daniel is describing here the times of the Gentiles. Ages and ages and ages of Gentile domination over Jerusalem that will begin in just a few years when Nebuchadnezzar has had his fill with the kings of Judah who won't cooperate with him. So this has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar obviously quite quite a great deal of truth of the coming kingdoms. And it's revealed to us the truth that we know to be real just by looking around us when we realize that God in His sovereignty is allowing this increase of evil, this increase in the manifestation of evil until the time that he returns. But one last thing for us to see, and then we'll be done, is this. The stone that was cut by no human hand that destroys all these kingdoms. The fact that the stone was cut by no human hand is a great truth there because what that teaches us is that the kingdom of Christ is not a kingdom that humans have to cooperate with. God doesn't need our help. We aren't cooperating together with God to bring about the kingdom of heaven. It will be brought about by a stone that no human hand had to cut or could cut. God does not need the help of people to bring about His will. Acts chapter 17, these are the words... Of course, as Paul is preaching there, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Psalm 15, verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, says God, for the world and its fullness are mine. God does not need us. God is not waiting in heaven hoping that His people will cooperate with Him so His kingdom can go forward. The kingdom of heaven should be thought of like this, like a stream that is flowing to the river on a predetermined course, and that course is the banks of the stream. The water in that stream will make it to the ocean. And as it goes along its path to the ocean, the stream invites the leaves of the fall to fall into it. And if they do, they will be carried to the sea. That's like what God says to us. My kingdom will come. And I invite you to join in with the work of my kingdom. 
And God graciously extends an offer to us to join together in His sovereign work. He's not wringing His hands just hoping that we'll agree so that His work can move forward. Instead, He declares, I change times and seasons. I set up kings. My kingdom will come just as I have determined it to be. And I invite you to come and enter the waters of my kingdom and be carried along. How foolish for the leaf to get to the ocean and say to the other leaves, if it wasn't for me, this stream wouldn't have made it here. How foolish. Instead, the leaf arrives at the ocean and says, what a ride. And now I'm here. That's what God says to us. To enter into the stream of His kingdom. Of course, we only entered into that stream through the baptismal waters, through the blood of Jesus being washed in His blood. But being so, God invites us to come and join in His sovereign work that is headed to a specific destination in a specific time, all according to His sovereign wisdom. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.